I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have as our guest Andy Posner, who founded Capital Good Fund in February 2009 while getting his Master's of Arts in Environmental Studies at Brown University in Rhode Island. That's where he was studying financing mechanisms for clean energy. While there, after reading The Banker to the Poor by Dr. Mohammed Yunus, the quote-unquote father of microfinance and 2006 Nobel Prize winner, he quickly realized that equitable financial services could be unlocked the potential of the poor just as they could do the same for clean energy technologies. And at the same time, as the financial crisis of 2008 began to unravel the whole economy and devastate low-income communities, Andy decided to take action. He created Capital Good Fund with an eye toward using financial services to tackle endemic poverty, first in Rhode Island, where Brown is located, and then nationwide. I'm really happy to have Andy Posner join us today on The Caring Economy. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. My my pleasure. I'm really excited about the topic of kind of purpose-driven careers and uh, excited to talk about my story. And Great. Well, let's start at the beginning. Give us the digest of Andy Posner's life, please. Sure. I, I like to tell my story by kind of noting that my goal in high school was to drop out and be a pro tennis player. My bachelor's is in Spanish. I have no background in business, economics, finance, or entrepreneurship. And I run one of the fastest growing consumer lending nonprofits in the country. And I note that because I talk a lot to people, particularly young people, about the imperative to work in the the social sector broadly defined Mm -hmm. as we face and navigate all sorts of global and local crises. And one of the excuses I hear is I need to first gain expertise in that area, by which they typically mean I want to go work at Goldman Sachs for five years or whatever, and then I'll go do the career I really want to have. And I proceed to kind of rebut those arguments. And I'm sure we can talk about that. But, you know, my story is is unusual in that I didn't come up and get a finance degree and then start a nonprofit lender. I started with an interest in the intersection of poverty and climate. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes back to my upbringing I grew up in Los Angeles, California. Both of my parents are Jewish, not religious, but very culturally Jewish. And, mm-hmm. you know, as such, we have a very strong tradition of the Kunalam, you know, an interest in, in social justice and being intellectual. And, and I got to read a lot. I was around very educated and learned people. I was exposed to the arts. And so came up with a very open and curious mind. My mom is from Ukraine, so I also speak mm-hmm. Russian. and he fled because of anti-Semitism. My grandmother was there during World War II. So I, I've always been aware of what injustice can ultimately lead to for a minority group, whether you're Jewish or, you know, in my case, personal experience, but I understand, you know, the impacts, how that can also impact other, other populations. So I think I always was looking for a way to do something great. And by great, I just mean bigger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a vehicle for that for a while, which is why I kind of, I was very good at tennis. I kind of latched onto that. I said, I'm going to be a pro tennis player. And I was, I was good. I, I had a coach and, you know, I was, that was going to be the path. But then I, I stumbled on romantic philosophy with a capital R. I had a 10th grade English professor who um, seemed to want to be like Robin Williams in the Dead Poets Society. He dressed like him <laughs> and the like, but had the same impact on me yeah. in that 
I finally got like a pretty good intellectual framework for ideas and poetry. And, and I became, a, that's when I realized I could be a poet. And, and I am now, I'm a published poet. And that's a big part of my identity. That started to take me down a different path, which the way I often describe it is that there's this kind of like a conveyor, conveyor belt feeling you often have, at least in America, and I'm sure elsewhere as well. And you're growing up and you're kind of expected to, you know, do well in middle school and then high school and do your SAT and go to college and get a job, get married, have kids, retire, die. You know, and I always wanted some off ramp to that. And, and tennis was that. And then poetry started to show me a different way. You know, I read Thoreau and, and all of that. And then the, the real triggering moment for me was the war in Iraq. So the, in particular, like in 2002, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. Um, the war drum started to beat. I got interested in the anti-war movement. And at the time, you know, whether or not this is the case, I don't know, but we were saying no war for oil. And I went to all sorts of protests. And when the war happened, regardless, I decided that I would protest by trying to stop consuming oil, which, of course, turned out to be impossible. But I didn't drive for many years, um, got really into biking. I ended up biking across the country. But this made me start to think about, well, if I can't get off of oil entirely, like everything we do is a wash in oil, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to do that? And what are the implications of oil usage and, and the like? Um, and so eventually I got it very, I was lucky to get into Brown for a master's program in environmental studies, where I decided that I would focus on the intersection of poverty and climate, which you noted in the intro and I, I already noted as well. But yeah, that's sort of my slightly circuitous path to at least starting the organization. So how, how engaged are you with the tennis part of your life still? Well, one of the things that led me to stop playing was two things. One is I hurt my shoulder. <laughs> and so, but then the other was, you know, I was becoming a poet and I was very moody. And people were like, oh, that's just how poets are. It turned out I was undiagnosed bipolar. Okay. And so I would, you know, for two weeks, I could beat like a collegiate player when I was 15 but then I wouldn't be able to get out of bed for two weeks. And so I was just never able to train very consistently. So between the injury and just my, you know, I would break rackets. It was not fun for anybody. It really kind of petered out. And so roughly coincident with when I decided to, to kind of start thinking about social issues or you know, focusing more on that. I don't play much anymore, uh, mostly because I'm, I'm into cycling now. I have a tattoo of a, of a bike right there. So I love cycling. You know, bikes represent a lot for me in terms of the beauty of technology and efficiency and the like. I used to do um, triathlons and I love the the biking swimming part of it in particular and then marathons as well but you get a certain point where I'm just happy to walk each day now. I know I, I also sprained my right ankle probably 15 times and that Ooh. also didn't bode well for a tennis career so yeah. yeah. Well Andy thank you for sharing the bipolar diagnosis. I've actually been more con- conversant in it now over the past decade than ever before because so many friends and colleagues have um, have been dealing with it and I feel that stigma is always a challenge so I'm grateful that you can share that with us and um, yeah. we'll dwell on it but I would like to know just for our listeners out here who might want to know more about how you and your family dealt with it, it how how do you, how did you deal with it? Was it, um, do you, did you find the support you needed? Do you have the support you need now? How does one find that kind of support as you did? Yeah. And I, I don't ascribe any stigma to it. So I'm, I'm always happy to speak about it. Um, you know, it was interesting because until after I started Capital Good Fund, I was, my, my bipolar was more characterized by depression than mania. Although I would say that many of the ideas that I had, both, and, and also, 
you know, there's something about the mania that, that kind of frees you from that, like conveyor belt, like it kind of, yes. you know, many people are still tied exactly. down to the earth and, and it kind of allows you to think more creatively. I mean, granted the come down from that can be painful, yeah. but uh, it allows you to make connections. But anyways, as I got into my early twenties and the mid twenties, I was having a lot more kind of severe ups and severe downs. Huh. And what really brought me to get treatment, I mean, I had like a little bit of, I saw some therapists for depression and I took some antidepressants, but it turns out if you're bipolar and you take antidepressants, all that's going to do is send you up. And in 2010, I went through a difficult breakup. um, And then for the next 10 months, I went into a manic period. I, I, I was working like 12 hours a day, wasn't getting tired. And then all of a sudden it, it petered out and I entered a depression that was very, very difficult to get out of. Um, and that's when we started experimenting with different medications. And I was fortunate. I mean, you know, I didn't grow up wealthy, but I never had to worry about money. I had access. I could pay for therapy, which insurance did not cover. Mm-hmm. So I was able to see a therapist and have a psychiatrist, a psychologist who could prescribe medication. So I was doing both psychotherapy and medication. You know, it turned out in my case that it was really a chemical issue. Once I got the right medication, it was very under control. It, the worst year was the year during which we were experimenting with, first we started with lithium and I was nauseated and then this, that, and the other. But I think for like 10 years now, I've, I've done some minor adjustments to my medication kind of cocktail. Uh-huh. It's been very steady state. I wonder uh, if there's a, a general resource that you recommend to people or uh, just Google it if you want to know more. How, what, how would I would you... be very careful about the sources you read if you're Googling about mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, my advice would be to get professional who can provide care mm-hmm. because i think the first question is to, you know it, it, these things are difficult to separate out but to what extent is a chemical versus um you know situational or experiential yeah. and, and of course there's often a mix but for me like really it was it was basically the chemical chemistry of my brain that needed to be adjusted okay. um because i i just you know i unless somebody talks to you and really teases out your specific situation it's hard now the reason I'm a little reticent to give that advice is that it's expensive and hard to do. But what I would say is that, I mean, I was not suicidal, but I could definitely see how there was, I could, there would be, I don't know how much longer I could have put up with that, the severity yeah. ups and downs, you know? So maybe um, start with the family, uh, a family physician is a. Yes. In fact, hundred percent. My primary care doctor was excellent. She put me in touch with a therapist who then put me in touch with a psychologist, psychologist. I mean, I think what I would say is that, you know, if you're, deciding between going on a vacation and paying for psychiatric care. If you're that, if you're struggling to that extent, mm-hmm. the investment in your psychiatric care is, is worth it because it's going to unlock the rest of your life. You know, it's, and these are, these are treatable issues. And, and the stigma piece, I think just one needs to get over that. It, it's no more, it's no more embarrassing than having an issue with the pancreas. I mean, I know it's wrapped up in emotion and that sort of thing, but. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's helpful. Of course. Yeah. Um, so, so let's jump to then to your creating capital, good fund. Uh, tell us a little bit about the environment that you create that, that was going on in the world that led to your catalyzing it, and then tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I was I was at Brown, which of course is an, a wonderful university, but any university has wonderful people and resources. And the thing I, the first thing I tell people if you're in school, undergrad, I mean, high school, undergrad, grad doesn't matter. 
take advantage of that. You have time. You have students who can work with you on projects. You can talk to teachers. And if you pick up the phone and you're a college student, I remember I talked to the, the, the president of a local bank because I didn't understand banking. And so I wanted to do that. So take advantage of that. That was crucial. Um, the, the context for this was I started grad school in 2007. I knew I wanted to act at the intersection of poverty and climate. So in other words, I didn't want to just save trees for the sake of saving trees. But I knew that you know, you, you could tackle poverty, you can improve a life. But if you don't deal with, say, climate change, everyone's life is going to be negative impacted. So I wanted to do both. That was my framework. And that actually, that's my nugget of wisdom. Like, that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is like, you have to create for yourself a rubric for what it is that you want to work on and benchmark any opportunity against that. I did not know it would be starting a lender. But when the financial system collapsed in 2008, I was, as you noted in the intro, at the time, studying clean energy financing mechanisms, like something called property assessed clean energy financing. Mm-hmm. So I was really interested in how you could design a financial instrument that unlocked the potential of energy efficiency or solar energy. When Lehman Brothers went under, I had no understanding of what the connection was between that and a low-income immigrant being foreclosed on or a single mother losing her job. Mm-hmm. So I said, let me, let me research it. And this is where being a college student helped. There were all these resources, but you don't need to be. You can, there's all these scholarly books and podcasts and blogs and articles, et cetera. And that's when I started learning about redlining and predatory lending and Mm -hmm. other types of discriminatory practices in the financial system. And I realized, okay, the financial system can be a a tool of uplift, like in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, or it can be a tool of oppression, whether it's, you know, paid lenders in Rhode Island charging 260% APR or... I mean, Washington Trust Bank, just today, as we went to record this, um, settled with the state of Rhode Island for $9 million for redlining, meaning not mm-hmm. lending in certain communities for over, from like 2016 to 2020 or something like that. This is still happening. Yeah. So when I realized that, I said, okay, I'm starting to see like financial services as this sort of hub around which good can happen. And, and when I looked around, I saw there was really a dearth of entities providing financial services for underserved families to help them avoid a downward spiral or to enable them to move up the economic ladder as, and also to benefit from emerging energy efficiency and clean energy technologies. So, how, how does so it I actually work? turned that into my master's thesis, which okay. then became the organization. And, and, and how does one unlock that kind of capital for those who are more disadvantaged? So, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because in a sense, I started a bank, although to be clear, we're a nonprofit loan fund. We are not a depository institution. Mm-hmm. As I was doing my research, and I can't emphasize this enough, while I started out by saying that I didn't have expertise in this area, all that meant was I wasn't biased against it. You know, a banker knew, quote unquote, that this wouldn't work. I didn't know any better. <laughs> but naivete is not the answer. Naivete is kind of the starting point, but then I became an expert. And I really want to emphasize that. I became an expert in these issues. And one of the things I came across was something called the Community Development Financial Institutions uh, or CDFI Fund at U.S. Treasury. It was actually, interestingly, a program started by President Clinton um, because when he was governor of Arkansas, he heard about Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh, who's, as you noted in the intro, uh-huh. the father of microfinance, brought a program like his to Arkansas and then created this program at, at, at U.S. Treasury. And it's a certification to, it could be a bank, credit union, or nonprofit loan fund. It's a certification 
uh, for entities that use financial services responsibly to, to serve certain underserved communities. Uh -huh. So I said, okay, my goal is to start a nonprofit that can get certified as a CDFI, which we achieved that certification in 2011 and we still have it. And there are about a thousand CDFIs around the country, but that was really helpful because it gave me at least some template yep. to do that. But, you know, I mean, there were all sorts of challenges. We had to create our whole technology infrastructure. We had to raise the money we lend out. So not only do we have to raise operating money, uh, about 30% of our revenue of our expenses are covered by interest income. 70% are currently covered by grants and donations. We also had to raise the money that we lend out, which we actually borrow. So I had to get the organization to a place where people felt comfortable lending us money for us to then lend it to low-income people, mm -hmm. which meant I had to overcome their skepticism. I had to have clear policies for reviewing applications, for complying with state and federal regulations, et cetera, et cetera. So it required a very sophisticated operation, which I did not have day one, uh, but I, you know, we developed that more and more as, as we grew our loan portfolio. I should note that we have done uh, 13,000 loans for uh, $37 million with a 97% repayment rate. But it was a long slog. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, I'm thrilled to have Andy Posner with us. He founded Capital Good Fund in 2009. And as we both have mentioned, Andy, the um, uh, Dr. Muhammad Yunus inspired you as he inspired Clinton back in the day when uh, he, he did his collaboration with the U.S. government. Hey, what is it about Yunus's uh, philosophy or his his writings that uh, that actually sort of um, inspire you. And then, have you ever met the man? I actually have. So um, he, the bank that he started is called Grameen Bank, and it's in Bangladesh, and it's still around today. And in 2010, I took a trip out there for three weeks. They have a training institute, and I got to take a photo and shake his hand and talk to him for a little bit in in their headquarters building in Dhaka, the capital. What it is about his writing that inspired me was that he had this idea and still has of what's called a social business. So it's a business, it can be for-profit or non-profit, doesn't matter. But the idea is that it covers its operating costs through its operations. And that is our goal. We want to get to a place where all of our expenses are covered by interest and fees that we earn from our portfolio. But crucially, they don't have a profit. Anything beyond covering their costs is reinvested into serving for families. Mm -hmm. um, and I really love that idea. I have a lot of, I take a lot of issue with this whole idea of do well and do good. I think both philosophically and mathematically, it is bullshit. In other words, I mean, really from a math perspective, if you build a financial model for most businesses and you say, I want to charge an equitable price and I want to not have high carbon emissions or have fair trade practices or pay a living wage, mm -hmm. You can do that. But then if you also plug into the model, I want to deliver a 10% return to my investors, you can't do it. it. It does not pencil out. There are some rare circumstances where that might be the case. Like if you think Tesla is a responsible company, which I do not, but if you do, then sure, they're very profitable and you know they, they do reduce emissions. They have terrible labor practices. Mm. They're, you know, they lie a lot and whatever their, their CEO is insane. But in most cases, there, there's no such thing as a $10 t-shirt, the way I put it, right? It, it, to make to sell a t-shirt for $10, you have to not price in the cost of the slave labor or the forced labor, the chemicals and the carbon emissions, you know, all those externalities can't be priced in. So um, 
you, you can't do well and do good. You can do, you can do well and do okay. You know, like I, you know, my salary is reasonable. I can make a lot more if I wanted to, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable. I don't worry about money personally. Um, if we had investors who were expecting us to go public and earn a thousand X on their money, like they do investing at Google, that would be utterly incompatible with the social mission. And that's, that was the thing that he woke me up to when I first read his book, um, Bankers to the Poor. And he had a subsequent book, the name of which I'm forgetting, but it was about social business. But then it was something I've just seen over and over and over again as I've built financial models and I've evaluated financial models for social enterprises and other people's nonprofits where they say, well, my, you know, I want to be able to raise unlimited money and pay whatever 10% to my investors. And I'm looking at the model and saying, well, yeah, but the way you're doing that is you're charging 200% interest or you're not paying your workers well, or you're relying on high emissions inputs, whatever it may be. How does it compare to a B Corp? Concept and B Corp is more of a legal structure. That's the only difference. I think philosophically, they're pretty simple. The thing for me about being a nonprofit, aside from being able to raise grants, is that because we don't have any owners, there's nobody that can force us to make a decision that's contradictory with our mission. And I get very wary the moment you issue equity, because if somebody else owns a majority stake in your in your business, when they, when push comes to shove, they can force you to make a, a decision to prioritize the profit over people or planet. Mm. A B Corp does a lot to pre- protect that, but I guess I would just say to any entrepreneur, if you're taking equity investments, to be very careful about their voting rights to make sure they're aligned with you. Can you share an example or two of how uh, how the fund has made the difference in someone's life or an organization's life? It can be as generic as possible, but uh, we'd like to see what success looks like for you in the fund. Yeah, absolutely. So I should say, just backing up, our mission is to create pathways out of poverty and advance the green economy through inclusive financial services. One thing I'll say for people that want to start or even work at a social enterprise, if they can't tell you what their mission statement is in one <laughs> sentence, that's a red flag. So you want to have, what's your mission and what's your uh, approach for uh, tackling that mission? And it can't be too broad because you can't solve everything with one entity. And the way that we, the way that we achieve that mission is we do loans and leases for low-income families for three categories of things. Energy efficiency and solar energy for low to moderate-income homeowners. Covering the cost of immigration expenses, such as deportation defense, getting a green card, applying for citizenship. And then a general small dollar bucket for things like rent, utilities, car repair, security deposit, and the like. We have countless examples of people who were um, had under a deportation order, had a clear pathway to contesting that and winning. Uh, but in America, he or she who has the best lawyer typically wins. And low-income immigrants are not typically able to access high-quality representation. Yeah. So when they face a deportation order, typically what that means is they go in the shadows. And that means they lose all legal protection. They, um, you know, they're exploited. They're underpaid. They don't have access to benefits, et cetera. They can't participate in the civic life of our economy. They can't formalize their businesses. So we have countless examples of people who were under deportation order who were, for example, if you're a victim of domestic violence and you're an immigrant, there's the Violence Against Women's Act, there are pathways of citizenship. So our loan enabled them to not only avoid deportation, but to get a green card, to start a business, to buy a home, to become a citizen, to become active in their community, on their school board, to vote, 
to advocate, to become activists. We have a lot of stories like that. We have a lot of stories of single mother who say during the pandemic uh, gets a pink slip and she gets a, an eviction notice and absent our loan would either end up homeless or um, taking out a high interest loan that would drain her wallet, hurt her credit, result mm-hmm. in bankruptcy. Um, and so what we see is that our average client's FICO score goes up 75 points. They, the borrower saves anywhere from $500 to $5,000 in interest and fees, depending on what kind of product they're taking out. Mm-hmm. And then there's the impact of the loan itself. So you're fixing your car, you're becoming a citizen, you know, all of that. Are you involved with any of the, I'm here in New York City. Are you involved with any of the incoming migrants that we have right now? We're sort of taking in a lot from the border and it's uh, testing the city, but thankfully we're staying true to welcoming and being a sanctuary city. Yeah, I'm aware of that issue. You know, the, the challenge for us is that we don't lend in New York. And the reason is that uh, we're regulated state by state. New York is a state where for us to get a lending license, it's a fairly involved process. Mm -hmm. Um, We just got a license in Pennsylvania. So we're going to start offering our immigration loan there. New York is on the radar. Now, what I will say, though, is that so we're the national preferred loan partner to the American Immigration Lawyers Association or AILA. And so what we can do is let's say there's an immigrant, a new arrival in New York that has a path to a green card or some sort of humanitarian assistance, asylum, what have you. Uh, if they're in New York, we can't, we can't make a loan to them. But if they have a friend or family member that lives in one of the state, the 10 states that we lend in, mm-hmm. they can take out the loan on their behalf. Um, I don't know to what extent that's happening yet, to be honest. Yeah. We are doing a lot in Texas, for example, where they're also having a lot of folks coming across the border. Yeah. Um, but it is a big challenge. So how many states are you in currently? We're in 10, kind of all over. You know, every, we go as far west as Colorado, as far north as Illinois, as far south as Texas and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in New Jersey, a lot in New England. And then the 11th state starting in November will be Pennsylvania. And uh, international is not a part of your remit now, but could you envision a day where it would be? Or are there satisfactory groups already out there serving a similar audience? It is not part of our plans yet. Um, maybe before the Inflation Reduction Act, I would have said that was on the, in the cards. But because of the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to be doing billions of dollars of clean energy lending and leasing to benefit communities. And I'm so excited about that opportunity yeah. that I think that'll keep us plenty busy for the next decade. Can you say more about that as a business person? Because uh, I don't think we've all processed necessarily um, the, the where the rubber meets the road with this, no pun intended, that you know there is yeah. incredible opportunity, not just for the communities that will be enhanced, but the businesses, the workers who will help execute. Yeah, I mean, I hope people realize or take the time to realize how much the Biden administration accomplished in the two years where they had unitary control of government. You know, there was the bipartisan infrastructure law, there was the CHIPS Act to support um, computer chip manufacturing, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act contains, it's primarily a series of extremely attractive tax credits to incent expanded clean energy um, and energy efficiency work. The administration has has what they call their Justice 40 focus. So 40% of expenditures have to benefit 
certain communities, typically black, brown, immigrant, disproportionately impacted by fossil fuels or pollution or climate change. So for example, in our case, I'll, I'll give a very specific example. In fact, the day before we're recording this, we launched our solar leasing program, which was made possible by the Inflation Reduction Act. One of the challenges is that much of what America does is use the tax code to benefit, to, to create programs, whether that's incentivizing clean energy or schools or affordable housing development. It's complicated and it creates barriers. So for example, there's a 30% tax credit if you put solar on your home. The problem is if you're low income and you don't owe any or much federal taxable tax, then you can't claim the credit. It doesn't do you any good. Mm-hmm. And that makes it very difficult for the economics of clean energy, for like residential solar to work for low to moderate income families. However, the bill did make the tax credit what's called refundable to nonprofits. So what does that mean? It means that if a nonprofit owns a solar system or battery storage or wind or other types of energy, clean energy, it can get the tax credit from the IRS via a a rebate check. So we launched a solar leasing program because it allows us to unlock that benefit and pass the savings on to the homeowner. So under our program, it's piloting in Georgia. We're going to install solar on 200 low-income homes. We own the solar system. We monetize the tax credit. uh, We raise the capital to purchase the system. We operate the equipment. um, But the homeowner realizes the savings. Very cool. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Um, What do you, so I'm a big believer in, um, as we go into this election cycle, in bridging leadership and finding ways to um, get both sides to calm down a bit, come together, find common ground. I wonder what you say to those who want to say you're woke versus those who want to say you're progressive. What? How do you navigate that in your in your capacity building each day? Uh, well, I'm I'm unabashedly uh, you know progressive. I I recognize the need to build bridges. However, I think it's unavoidable to acknowledge that there's a significant portion of the electorate that is just irrational and not operating in good faith. The most important thing I can say about doing good is that absent public policy, you cannot do it. It's just impossible. You you cannot private sector your way out of whatever social problem, climate change, poverty, whatever. Hmm. As an example, you you might look to Elon Musk and say, oh, well, look at him. He's an entrepreneur. He completely changed the marketplace. Now we have electric vehicles everywhere. Yes, except were it not for the uh, electric vehicle tax credit, were it not for a loan from the D- Department of Energy's loan programs office, his business would have been would have gone under multiple times. Yeah, utterly impossible without policy. You know, n- no one starts these things by themselves. Elizabeth Warren has a great quote about that. So public policy is imperative, but so is power. You cannot do anything with power, and I think people on the left are very uncomfortable with power. There's a great organizer named Saul Alinsky who talks a lot about this. And sometimes power means consensus building. Sometimes power means just grabbing power. And I mean, granted, it it can be a dangerous thing if like on the right now, they just want power. There's no policy and there's no interest in democracy. But again, if you look like, for example, the state of Minnesota now, they have a a trifecta. They, They run, they have the governorship, the House and the Senate. And they were just passing good piece of policy after good piece of policy after good piece of policy. And that's what has to happen. 
And, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was rammed down the throats of Republicans. Not a single one of them voted for it. But it is good public policy that was informed by a lot of conversations with stakeholders. Yeah. So I don't know. Part of me wants to just say there's a lot of people who can just go pound sand and I don't have time for them. Yeah, you have to uh, conserve, to do what you can with uh, where you have the potential for greater impact. It's also interesting right. think in this day and age to see how much the action is really happening at the local level, the city and the state level. Um, we can't just look to Washington to be the the big silver bullet or bromide. hundred percent. I mean, some of the scariest things are happening at school boards. You know, there's Moms for Liberty, which I mean, <laughs> right. you know, they're, 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 books. some of them are promoting Nazi propaganda, literally in book bans. I mean, I'm not even exaggerating with that. And as a Jew, it's very concerning. But, you know, you have to be involved on the school board, on the city council level, the Public Utilities Commission. Yeah, if you think by voting every four years for president, you are fulfilling your duties as, as a citizen, simply one who wants to do good, you are fooling yourself. You know, you really should know the name of your state rep, your state senator, your county rep, your your alderman or what have you, alderman or alderwoman, and engage with them on these issues. And particularly, the, 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 the more local you are talking, the more your voice matters. Yeah. And uh, you can be sure that fossil fuel interests and gun rights people, they're on the phone with, the, with, with their state reps, their local reps, scaring them out of doing things that the majority of the population supports. Yeah. But they don't hear from them. And also, those interests are not as moneyed as the fossil fuel industry yeah. say. And money, of course, is is, a, is another challenge. Age old, right? An age old challenge. Yeah. Um, I'm mindful how much time has flown by. Um, I, I, I want to ask you one last question. We always ask our guests, Andy, which is uh, pearls of wisdom that you've gleaned throughout your life and your career. Any um, mantra-like sayings you have or advice you gave? I, I like the one you gave already about intersectionality of for you, climate and, and social justice. But um, what are your tips to the young people who want to be you when they grow up or those who maybe are disrupted mid-career and want to keep their faith and, and live purposeful lives? Good never happens accidentally or on its own. I, I don't care what you're looking at, whether it's a beautiful public park, an affordable housing complex, a good piece of public policy, a, uh, a really beautiful cafe that hires uh, people who, you know, ex-offenders. Good happens because of intentionality. And in the absence of that, bad will happen, if not evil. And I often will note that people spend more time identifying what, researching what Netflix movie they're going to watch than they do thinking about their career, how they're going to donate their money, how they're going to engage in the social sector, whatever, you know, writ large. And so as I talked about before, I think it's really important for people to think, what are my values? What are my interest areas? And create that rubric so that, because I think what can happen is if you don't anchor yourself that way, a job offer can come up and you can say, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll take that job and you know, we'll see what happens. And then it's very easy, 15 years later, you find yourself that you've been in this career and suddenly you're like, wait a minute, that actually wasn't what I wanted, but I never took the time. And it's better to do that at a start. I mean, of course you can do a mid-career shift. Um, so it's create that rubric and then don't just hope to find opportunity, you know, create opportunity. Um, there are so many resources, this podcast, Again, books and articles, and there are good people everywhere, but you have to find them out. And usually it means getting out from in front of your computer and getting out into the real world, whether it's a meeting in a church basement of people planning a protest against fossil fuels or whatever it is, 
go out. I mean, you can already start, but ultimately you've got to go and meet people in person, but take advantage of all the goodness that's out there to build on that goodness. And it also, it's not just about doing good. It's also, you know, fulfillment, obviously, as you know, I mean, that's the whole point I imagine is that it's fulfilling for you to be aligned with your values. And it doesn't have to mean a huge pay cut. I mean, you're not going to become a multimillionaire, uh, but you know, it doesn't mean you don't need to be Gandhi. That is not the ask. <laughs> right. It's much more fulfilling. I like that. I agree with that. I I, um, I like the idea that good doesn't happen uh, on its own. Uh, the caring economy is, you know, caring is an active verb. It's not something that just is. So um, I love that catalytic, catalytic aspect of what you're describing. Um, so we didn't get to talk about your poetry. So I'll just ask you how one can find you or your poetry if they want to be in touch. Oh, yeah. Um I have my own website where I, I post a lot of my blogs and, and, and poems. Um, so it's andyposner.org, my personal website. And then people who want to learn more about our organization can go to capitalgoodfund.org um, and you can see all the information, our impact stories. And if you need a loan, you can apply for a loan. We also offer financial coaching. Um, awesome. so please connect with me. And I'm, I, you know, I do view part of my mission to be to support other people looking to get into this space because I know... I can't solve poverty or climate change myself. Yep. I need more. We need more people to do it. And so I'm always happy to serve as a resource to get on the phone with somebody, give them feedback, recommendations, what have you. So feel free to reach out to me. Thank you for that generous offer. And I'm sure people will, we will, we will include it. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our guest today, Andy Posner, who has been, he's been a delightful guest, poet, cyclist, but most importantly for us, he's the founder of Capital Good Fund and doing amazing work for the disenfranchised people across the U.S. Andy, good luck to you and come back. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.